0: Conforming and being a bystander in social situations is very easy to do. Indeed, our brains tend to orient us toward being bystanders and to conforming, and that may have been important to our survival at one point, but it doesn't help us stand up for justice. Social psychological experiments that look at conformity and the bystander effect provide stark reminders of these facts. Yet, to override our brain's tendency to stay quiet in the face of injustice and to instead choose to be an ally and upstander generally requires thought, preparation, and education. Speaking to the importance of standing up for our fellow humans, Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel once said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. He also said, silence encourages the tormentor Never the tormented. And that is why I feel compelled to discuss this important topic to better understand the experiences of being Asian American, the subtle and covert racism they face, and how we can all be better allies. This is a topic that understandably incurs anger, sadness, and urgency, and you can hear these throughout the interview. My guest, Dr. Sherry Wang, is a licensed psychologist, researcher, an anti-racist educator, and a professor of psychology at Santa Clara University. Since the start of COVID-19, she has been featured, cited, and interviewed in the media on the topic of anti-Asian racism, xenophobia, and cross-racial coalition building. So join Dr. Wang and me as we talk about being allies to our Asian American brothers and sisters. Dr. Sherry Wang, who has asked me to call her Sherry, Welcome to Super Psyched.
1: Thank you for having me here, Adam.
0: I'm so glad you're here. And I've been so enjoying getting to know you behind the scenes. I'm so grateful to you for taking some time to share your wisdom with my listeners. First question I've got to ask you is, how did you get into this field of study and the type of work that you do, especially with regard to the types of changes that you're hoping to see in the future? How did this become your thing?
1: Such a great question. <laughs> it takes us all the way back. I actually, I, I'm Asian American and I identify as a Taiwanese American and a Taiwanese immigrant to this country. And so my specialization, right, in terms of my doctoral training is actually an immigrant and refugee mental health. And that's completely rooted in my own lived experiences as an immigrant and a child immigrant. I'm growing up in LA and in a suburb community with a lot of other Asian Americans and seeing just how much diversity there was amongst us, and yet folks outside of our community didn't know that. And so I wanted to study right, our my family's experiences, my experiences, my friends' experiences, to highlight both our, our strengths, but also the challenges that we face that folks don't know about, and to, in many ways, use my privilege. Privilege has been a really big part, I think, of my learning and growing in terms of being able to access higher education, for example, and to be able to say, well, here's all the knowledge I have to be able to amplify and share and disseminate our experiences so that people know what it's like and can help us and that we can help ourselves as well with the more we know and the more that we debunk and dismantle right assumptions and stereotypes about us.
0: That's fantastic. And it sounds like you really took to heart the idea of with great power comes great responsibility and that you're trying to use your responsibility in a very beneficial manner that will long outlive you.
1: People these days really think of privilege as a really bad word, power as a bad word. And I know actually of people's friendships, you know, that have ended because of statements like, Oh, you're so privileged. And I just think it doesn't have to be that way. Privilege is something everybody wants to have, right? Who doesn't want more power? And so, the issue with privilege and power is knowing you have it, being aware of how you can use it for good or for evil, right? And and then being intentional about the choices we have and about the choices that other people don't have. And so I think privilege and power is a beautiful thing, particularly as we think about advocacy and standing up and speaking out for others who don't have privilege and power. So I don't think there's anything to have to be ashamed or feel bad about when it comes to privilege. It's really the abuse of it and then having the humility to be able to take in that feedback when other people hopefully call you in as opposed to call you out about your privilege.
0: Let's go back to something you said earlier, which is about the concept of debunking myths. And I'm wondering, what are some common misconceptions of what's going on in the current environment with people acting in a very spectacularly horrible manner towards Asian-Americans.
1: Yeah, there's so much attention on the virulent hate that is happening for Asian-Americans in this past year or so. And in that sense, I think there are people who are so relieved that it's finally getting this attention. But I think that's a key point, is that it's not actually new for Asian-Americans throughout history, right? That that anti-Asian sentiments have always been here. It's just been veiled in humor, It's thinly veiled. It's been more covert. It's never been as physically violent or brutal or just unabashedly conducted as it has been this this past year. And there's a host of reasons for that. One of them being the role modeling that we've seen from leadership of that. It's okay to spew very racist and xenophobic rhetoric about Asian-Americans. Most people do not hate Asian-Americans. Most people would not even think that in that sense anti-Asian racism is applicable to them, that they can do anything about it because I'm not racist and I'm not racist to Asian Americans. And so I, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we're focusing on hate when really we're focusing on racism that manifests in much more subtle ways, much more covert ways. And, and the data that's you know being collected right now on the anti-Asian violence, is showing, actually, that the majority are not violent. The majority are not perpetrated by strangers, even, that it often is people we know. It is our colleagues, our classmates, our friends, sometimes even family members, for those of us who are multiracial or biracial, who say things like, you can't come to the family barbecue because of the Asian part of you. And this is a white family gathering only, right, for like, let's say, a white Asian mixed person. Those are some of the experiences that people have shared. In oh, terms my God. Of even getting it within their families.
0: Yeah. And what you're speaking to is that the idea of hate is not consistent with the experience that's actually going on. It sounds like it's more apathy or permissiveness that is kind of showing up in the face of this, as well as a long term dehumanizing of Asians throughout the years. When I was growing up, there were a few movies featuring Asian or Asian-American characters, but when they were featured, they were all too often unfairly scripted in a manner that seemed one-dimensional, which made it impossible to really get to know them and to care deeply about them. What do you think about this idea of the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy and perhaps permissiveness during this time that's perhaps even more pernicious when it comes to what's going on now in the current environment. Yeah,
1: certainly apathy is when people can easily turn a blind eye to what's happening or fail to intervene when these horrible things are happening to Asian Americans. And I'm talking about horrible when it comes to a level of physical violence, but I'm also talking about horrible when it isn't necessarily violent, right? For Asian Americans, our experiences of racism are more subtle and cumulative and traumatic in that sense, that it's not just being targeted on the street, it's suffering from being invisible, invisible in the academy, in our workplaces, in our social circles. And I mean that in the sense that we're omitted, we're forgotten all the time as people of color, even. Funding mechanisms don't consider Asian-Americans to be a marginalized community. You know, when I was in graduate school looking at funding opportunities for my dissertation or for my research, there are very few places that will say we recognize Asian-Americans to be a marginalized minority group that we would want to commit money on. And this is me studying immigrant refugee communities. And yet Asian-Americans are often omitted. Right? And, and thinking about minority populations. So, scholarships don't think about Asian Americans. But Asian Americans rarely make it to the top of the corporate ladder. Jokes about Asian Americans are much more tolerated than jokes of any other racial or ethnic group. I've been collecting data throughout this past year on anti Asian racism, and it's been painfully fascinating because so much of what the participants' experiences have been have included sharing their experiences of racism with. Their trusted ones, their friends, their partners, their families. And having folks, including other people of color, say things like, what? Asian-Americans experience racism? But, but are you guys like white or something? Or, or even saying to the level, uh, even saying things like, well, welcome to the club. Now you finally know what it's like to be a person of color. As though Asian-Americans aren't people or, of color. Right.
0: So yeah. there's something about the invisibility, the turning a blind eye, And that's a component of what's going on now uh, that's contributed to where we are. This What's interesting, I was speaking with a writer in Japan who said that with the advent of Japanese baseball players coming to the United States, Japan finally feels seen by the world. And that previously the most vexing piece of how they saw themselves in the international milieu was that they didn't have a face. And what you're describing in the Asian-American experience is exactly the same thing. The absence of a face to truly be seen within the milieu in the United States is one of the biggest components of why this is going on. Just the not seeing.
1: And not seeing. And then when Asian-Americans are seen, it is oftentimes with an agenda, with a particular caricature of these stereotypes that Asian Americans are quiet and submissive and deferential and weak and feminine. And they, these jokes about Asian men being less manly, even thinking about it, right? Is thinking about like, what shows have Asian Americans to begin with? And then which shows of the ones that have Asian Americans cast them in a positive light, in a humane way, right? And, and the, in a way where there's rich character development where the audience can relate to them and wants to be them. I mean, you're going to have a really hard time even thinking about one when it comes to mainstream shows that are not like all Asian-American cast, including like Harold and Kumar and including shows like Crazy Rich Asians and things that were really purposely designed to showcase this group. But if it were for the purpose of specifically trying to amplify Asian-Americans
0: you don't see it anywhere else. That is troubling that there aren't enough faces.
1: Yeah, there aren't enough faces. And I've been doing media interviews throughout this past year talking about this particular topic. And actually one of the mainstream news outlets had contacted me to ask how can we do a better job of capturing anti-Asian racism on the news? But how do we do a better job of presenting it? It was a great question. It was a very genuine question, too, of how do we advocate for Asian-Americans when the mainstream audience just doesn't seem to care that much about Asian-American victimization. That was really the question. And so wanting to kind of get some recommendations from my perspective. And so it was kind of a brainstorming session. And one of the questions that the the journalist had asked me was, could it be that one of the problems in terms of why people care so little about Asian-American racism, could it be that it's because Asian-Americans are not willing to show their face on camera? because of shame, because of stigma. And so is that why people don't care? Like we, because they just need to get over their shame. They need to be willing to speak up and speak out and talk about their victimization. And I thought, whoa, hold on. I know you really want to advocate and you really want to do a better job at helping our society care more about Asian Americans and Asian American racism. But this line of thinking is kind of problematic because what you're doing is you are inadvertently blaming Asian Americans for shame, right? Totally. And you're saying, get over your shame and do it for the team, right? Yeah. Do it for Asian, other Asian Americans. That's number one comment. Number two, what you're asking also is you're asking for racial trauma porn, and you're saying that will sell. And that's what we've done to Black Americans. That's what we've done, and that's what in the Black community there's been. There's this issue too of. How can we and why are we as a society so comfortable seeing black and brown bodies being brutalized on TV constantly? And now we are saying, hey, you know what, Asian-Americans, you should follow that route so that you can get more attention. That's a problem.
0: That is really disturbing. What was your proposal? What, I mean, it, just the mere premise of the question of how do we get the public to care is troubling. But how did you address it?
1: It's really mind blowing, I think, right? When you really think about how interconnected all of this is, that racism against Asian Americans isn't an isolated experience, that our, our societal apathy, our tolerance for it, our lack of empathy for it, it is connected with so many other things that there is this sense of, and we talk about this in the fields of psychology a lot, right? Particularly in classes that I teach on multicultural counseling, we talk about oppression Olympics. Who has it worse? But that is the worst thing to do, but that is really what we're trying to talk
0: about. Remember that expression, oppression Olympics. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Who has it worse? And in the research that I've been collecting on anti-Asian racism, that's been something that's come up too, where Asian Americans have felt, are we allowed to talk about our racial trauma? Is there space for us? Because at least what happened to me isn't as bad as what happened to Blank. And these, the blank that they're inserting are things are names like like Trayvon Martin. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, those are the comparisons that we are making in terms of, is my racial trauma valid if it's not as bad as blank? And so that's really problematic that we're feeling, you know, like we have to compete with it when Asian Americans and Black Americans (laughs) are victims of the same racist system. It just perpetrated in different ways. And so the need really is for us to, as audience or as community members be able to hear these stories and let folks tell and share their experiences without comparing them and without feeling like, well, how do I get this to have more attention than that? And this kind of perpetrating the scarcity myth of we can only have enough empathy and attention for one group at one time.
0: Where we need to actually be able to have the attention span for multiple groups with multiple Different presenting problems because a problem is still a problem, even if it seems to be less of a problem than someone else's. There's still a problem. And that's a very low bar to be setting. Well, it's not as bad as someone else's. Well, it's still bad. And bad is not acceptable.
1: And that it's connected, though, right? In fact, talking about the small bad, quote unquote, small, it's not small at all, actually, is connected to the other bads. And so I think when we can think about victimization and marginalization. When we think about racism as a systems issue, like a societal issue, it hurts all of us. And then there isn't a need to pick and choose which battle we're gonna take on.
0: Okay, I want you to address this, because that's really big. If you were to be able to create a message to really inform the public about how, when we harm any subset of the population, Everyone loses. How would you present that? Because I think that's really important.
1: That is a key message, actually. I I think in my role in teaching and doing kind of anti racist education, right, is really highlighting that we all lose. And there's, particularly, I think, as we're talking about race today and in this topic, that there's literally a book called The Cost of Racism to White People. Racism hurts every single one of us. Sexism, people think sexism only hurts women. Sexism, though, is what ties men up in these little boxes. And that's why we have toxic masculinity. That's why we have these assumptions about what manhood should look like. And that is also rooted in sexism. So any of these isms, it hurts every single one of us. And so in the context of racism, it's a losing battle for everyone, because I think this is the premise. And I think it helps if we can all understand it this way. We are all racist, period. There is no caveat. We are, period, because that is what we are born into, the society we're in. It is in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the shows that we, we watch, the messages we hear. So we're all racist in the sense that we all believe that whiteness is best, that the standards of beauty are all upheld based on whiteness. Achievement and success is based on what whiteness looks like. When we think about what a CEO looks like, what a four top 10 person looks like, it's all white. So our model of success is all white. So how can we not be racist? And I'm saying that even for people of color, because people often think, well, Black people can't be racist. Asian people can't be racist to themselves. Yes, we can. (laughs) We can. We can assume and choose whether it's conscious or unconscious that, a white candidate would be a better candidate than a black candidate, that a prospective hire who is white is going to be better than an Asian person based on all these assumptions about their work ethic or their values or how they carry themselves, how they physically walk and talk and mannerisms, that those are all actually probably pretty racist. And so I think if we recognize that about all of ourselves and it doesn't become this reactive response when people talk about racism, then rather than flinch at being called a racist and saying, I'm not racist and shutting down, I think if we assume all of our racist, all of us are racist, it allows each one of us to say, okay, how can I be a little bit less racist? <laughs> sure. How can I be anti-racist in this circumstance? Because we can't be anti-racist in every circumstance all the time. It's just not possible in the society that we live in now. And so I, I think If we frame it that way to recognize that knowing all white people are racist, all Asian people are racist, all black people are racist in different ways too, certainly and with different impact. And this is the part where we can all be racist, but because we all have different levels of power and privilege, some people's racism doesn't affect others and some really do. And so I I think for me, I think if we can operate out of that, it allows us to call each other in more rather than to call each other out to say, hey, you know what you did there. That's pretty racist because X, Y, Z. And then for the recipient to be like, oh, I didn't realize that was racist. Help me understand this. Let me do some work on my own to figure out where I got it from and why I believe this. And I'm going to do better next time. In fact, here's what I'll do differently next time. Blah, 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 blah. And it allows us, I think, to all grow.
0: You know, to the term grow, I was thinking about Carol Dweck's work with regard to mindset, she's a for those I know, you know who she is. For those listening, she wrote a book called Mindset, where she basically describes two different mindsets that we can rock. We can either go with what's called a fixed mindset, saying that there are smart people and there are dumb people, for example, or a growth mindset, which basically espouses the idea that we can all grow into who we wish to become. And I think that what you're inviting here by Acknowledging that everyone is, to borrow a song from Avenue Q, everyone's a little bit racist. We all are, and we all are products of our environment. And to relax into it with a growth mindset of growing and our awareness so that we become less so. And having the ability to nimbly talk about it in a safe environment with a non-shaming and blaming Conversational style, but the ability to get to borrow another term to get curious, not furious, to get curious about it Mm -hmm. and to just notice it and be real with it. Because that's always square one is to do a, a really accurate status report. Where am I on this continuum at this moment with this thing? Because if we can't do that, we can't grow into the people we wish to become. And everyone suffers if there isn't that. Safety to talk.
1: Absolutely, and and you know, this some ways, this is coming full circle to the beginning of our conversation about privilege and power and oppression. That if you have a lot of privilege and you have a lot of power, and you're being called to be aware of your racism and how much that's playing a role in all the things you're doing with so much power, then there's an urgency for you to have to really recognize. How you've contributed to racist practices and procedures and policies versus somebody who doesn't have a lot of privilege and power. That reflection may be just an interpersonal one between two people versus one where it's like, okay, you know what? Our company has been doing really racist practices. We've really just completely evaluated particularly employees this way. Here's an example. We've always thought that our Asian employees were really quiet, that they weren't leadership material hold on, that's actually really racist of us. And so we need to change these practices immediately. So there is an, an urgency and a responsibility for those with more power to do the work because of how much damage, see how much damage they can do, but also how much change in the positive direction that they can enact as well.
0: I think that's fantastic. And we also have the stack of cards against us neurophysiologically. Our neuroanatomy is such that there is implicit bias. We see people like us. And according to the work of Robert Sapolsky out of Stanford, who describes us and behave, we have a bigger hit of oxytocin when we see someone from our clan than we do when we see someone who's an outsider. And we're more likely to see the outsider, so to speak, someone who's different from us as a threat. And so it really requires, in my opinion, tenderness tenderness with self and tenderness with others, as we are becoming more inclusive, as we are becoming more aware of our biases, as we are trying to become the people who will benefit the entire organism that is humanity. I like thinking of what you just said earlier, which was that when we harm any population within society, everyone loses. I like thinking of society as being connected and almost akin to a human body inasmuch as I wouldn't want to do harm to my liver, I wouldn't want to do harm to a particular cultural population. Why would I want to do that? Because I will suffer. And when people become aware of this idea of this interconnectedness, that Yoda in Star Wars was right when he said that everyone is connected or everything is connected, we are, we really are. And we're seeing that more and more just how connected we are. And a lot of people erroneously conclude that we must just cut off particular populations. And that's the exact opposite of what we need to be doing.
1: If you think about it, it's just been the most horrific, devastating thing that's been happening at a global level, right? It's been a pandemic that is now in year two. And it is an example of how interconnected we are. Whether we have borders or we have the ocean between us, (laughs) when we have an infectious disease, we are all affected. And so in some ways, I think COVID has highlighted more than anything how interconnected we are in a bad way. Right. Right. Uh, But also in the good way, too. It's going to with that power. Right. You can shift it in that positive direction as well.
0: So many people, hopefully at this point, are thinking to themselves, what can I do? What can I do? I'm just a single person. How can I be an ally to the Asian-American population? How can I be? a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem.
1: We were just talking about insider outsider. And I think that is actually the distinct and unique situation of what it means to be Asian-American throughout US history is to always be seen as outsiders. And there's research that's highlighted too that Asian-Americans aren't looked at actually as minorities which is why when there are anti-racist initiatives, right? When there's diversity policies and programming happening, Asian-Americans are actually omitted oftentimes and it's because Asian-Americans, no matter how long you've been here for, generationally, you'll always get this question, but where are you really from? And that's kind of at the individual level, but at a societal level, what that means for Asian-Americans is that we're always seen as immigrants, even if we're not, even if you're like, I've been here three generations, this is my home. I've never even been to another country. People will still think an Asian-American is foreign. Is not from here. And so Asian Americans are always seen as outsiders in ways that other racial ethnic minority groups are not. And so in that sense, that sense of like, you're a threat, you're an outsider, you're a foreigner, you're an invader, that language comes in. The language I'm using, I hope you're hearing it, is not only the language of anti-immigration, anti-immigrants, it's also how we talk about infectious disease. Mm. It just invades Purge and invade, and have no control, but just takes over. So there's a fear of Asian Americans in that way that is very much racist and rooted in in the yellow peril. Which the yellow peril is all about back in the 19th century, the fear that the West had about Asia being a strong power, having strong military, economy, politics, and being worried not just worried that another country was stronger, but a non-white entity was stronger, that there is a yellow race that is going to be stronger. So it really was threatening to white supremacy. So I think really recognizing that the fear and the, the perception of Asian Americans as not American, as not belonging, is rooted in white supremacy. And, and therefore, it's really easy to think of Asian Americans as bad people, as not one of us. And so I don't think it's really just about hate. It's in the really subtle things that we do. Like the questions of, but where are you really from? Right? Even if you don't think you're being really racist, that it actually has that underlying white supremacist tone based on a fear of you must not be from here. Or even these are really positive stereotypes too that you think wouldn't be harmful, but they are. Questions of like, oh, your English is so good. <laughs> how did your English get to be so good? When somebody's like, I've been here my whole life, how did your English get to be so good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I think the recommendation or the thought of how do we how can we be more inclusive? How can we be good allies to, to the Asian Americans? Yeah, American that's really what I'd like to know. It's really being mindful of how we are all at the default level already racist against Asian Americans. And so how we can work to not be, right? How can we be anti-racist? How can we call it out, call these instances out? How can we recognize and Make note of when we see Asian-Americans omitted in certain programming, that they're excluded, they're not represented. Can we be the ally? Because we're able to be at the table when maybe Asian-Americans are not. Can we be the voice that says, hey, something is missing here. Where's Asian-American representation? Where are Asian-American voices? Are we presenting them in this humane way, in a comprehensive way? And are we being anti-racist when we think about Asian-Americans?
0: I'm going to do a miracle question with you. (laughs) Let's imagine five years from now, things are substantially better when it comes to the Asian American experience. What would be present? I'm not even going to ask what would be absent at this moment. I'm curious to know what would life look like if it were far better?
1: It's such a great question. It's one that I would think needs to be at so many different levels in terms of how we're represented in the media. That we're watching shows where there's Asian-Americans. That we don't need this one movie, Shang-Chi, to be the Asian-American movie, (laughs) right? It's
0: the one. It's the
1: one. We're seeing all sorts of movies like this. And that we are seeing Asian-Americans be celebrated, actually. So the problem with the model minority myth, right? The assumption that Asian-Americans are biologically harder working or more superior. It not only is, is inaccurate and wrong. The problem with that is it actually does not get to recognize Asian-American achievements, right? Because if you think, oh, like, are you just automatically good at math and science? Then that means that when people study really hard or yeah, work really hard and sacrifice. they do excel, yeah, it will never be recognized as hard work.
0: It's just taken for granted because they're Asian, so they're, therefore they must be good. At that thing, it when in fact behind the scenes they were like Rocky Balboa working hard.
1: Exactly. Right. And so I want us to celebrate Asian Americans for achievements and successes. I want Asian Americans to be able to be themselves, whatever that is, without these stereotypes pinned against them. So for example, I've gotten these comments pretty frequently throughout my professional career where people will say things like, well, oh, for an Asian woman, you're pretty outspoken. And that's like, I, I wish that weren't the case where there must be some kind of assumption that I can't be this way, that I'm atypical.
0: One of the things that you're saying five years from now is that Asian Americans are not being seen for being Asian Americans. They're seen for being people first with the host of individual differences that all humans rock in mm-hmm. this world and that yep. they're not just Boxed into a particular classification. Oh, here comes someone who's Asian, and therefore they are these um, things. And
1: then every single Asian American then has to prove themselves different to be seen as uniquely themselves.
0: I was listening to an interview yesterday where an Asian American man was being described. Uh, He apparently has a very strong Southern accent, and it always has to show up in the conversation. Like, oh, that was unexpected. And Wouldn't it be cool if he never needed to explain that ever again, and it was just considered normal? Yes, he's Asian, and yes, he's clearly from the South, and it's no more surprising to hear him speak than to hear a Caucasian person from the South speaking with a Southern accent.
1: Totally, yeah. Or since I lived in Mississippi, would talk about Northerners, right? (laughs) Yankees, (laughs) right? That we're not naming it. Just like this is just this this is just just how how you speak.
0: This is how we are. You know, many, many years ago, Margaret Cho, who I adore, came out with a TV show called All-American Girl, and it flopped, unfortunately. But I liked where she was going with this idea of, yes, well, why couldn't she be an All-American Girl and perhaps five years from now? And with my son, who's 12, and I like to think part of the new generation, he would not even blink an eye if she were the new representation of the All-American Girl. I'd love that. Yeah, that's that's kind of his vantage point. In fact, neither of my sons would. They would just be like, yeah, cool.
1: I have one year old twins, actually. Today is their, their birthday. Actually, Oh,
0: my <laughs> God. Happy <laughs> birthday to your kids. Thank you. By the way, for those of you keeping track at home, today is September 9th. These twin identical girls. My husband's Mexican-American and I'm
1: Taiwanese-American. So we have Asian-Latino mixed kids. And I've had to explain to my husband, following the atlanta shootings of what it means to be raising girls and for him to know that our baby girls in the future people will sexualize and fetishize and exoticize them and you need to know that dad and and as a mexican dad you're gonna be like what so we're having to have these conversations about Thinking for our next generation, how to prepare them and how to prepare ourselves and how we can do better as a society. So, thinking about like in 10 years, things have changed. I wish that would not be the case where I'd have to worry about my girls in that way.
0: Totally. So, you're talking about something that we hope is not part of the future. I want to go back to you and me talking about a little bit more about the blueprints for an amazing. World five years from now. I'm thinking about the great comedian Gabriel Iglesias, who I freaking adore. Fluffy is, as he is known to some. He has a sign that says united through laughter, which I think is actually the mantra. Like, let's find the common denominators. Let's bond in the best of what humans can rock. And I think one of those things actually is laughter and. I like the idea of somebody like an Ali Wong not being described as Asian-American comedian, but comedian Ali Wong. That's who she is. I just want to dream a little with you. Like, what else would it look like? Because I want to know what our North Star is. I think that's so important that the North Star be named and that the allies to Asian-Americans really hold that in their minds and hearts and in their intentions.
1: I think that's a great example. Yes, I think definitely comedians for our actors, for our comedians or actors, our musicians that they are not kind of niched in this like you're in this ethnic bubble only, and totally. that is your audience, that is her audience. Having an Asian American, all American girl as a representation, I would love that. I also think about food too. That I was talking to a student last year actually. that it was a college student wanting to write a paper on on racism and about food. And I said, when you want to go out, like you have yep. an anniversary dinner or you have a big you know, celebration, you're going out to dinner. You may go to a place that has French food or Italian food, but you will not go to a Chinese food place.
0: I, I, you're talking to the wrong guy. Actually, I, I went Sino. If you remember that place in, in Santana Road, Santa, that is actually where I would have gone. Oh, I so. love that. And the other place was always his, I mean, you can ask my wife it's always sushi. It might be a French restaurant, but it's generally going to be sushi in my case.
1: <laughs> That's our case too, actually, in my family. But it's rare, actually, you're right? right? It's not right. with everybody. I would love for there to be more, I think, respect for Asian food in that way, that we think about it as like cheap food or fast food or oily food. And I am mostly talking about the stereotype that Chinese food gets. And that shouldn't be the case, actually. There's thousands of years of history for Chinese food where it's healthy and nutritious and it can be five star food. But I, I think it's also pretty racist, actually, that we only think about it in those lens. And so I would love for there to be that kind of celebration and recognition of chefs who make that food and that kind of cuisine being elevated.
0: Well, thankfully, David Chang of Momofuku yes. fame is rocking it. And so many others. My son I swear you can't make this up. Is obsessed with cooking. The twelve-year-old and all he wants to cook is Japanese food. For what it's worth, that's all. I mean, like every weekend we will go to the Japanese grocery store and we will get ingredients and we will cook Japanese food. He's obsessed with it. But to your point, Chinese food has always been my birthday food, especially when I was a kid. Like, where do you want to go for dinner? It was always for Chinese food, and. I mean, it says a little bit about my own culture. I, I come from a cultural background that really values Chinese food in a very high level. But yes, I'm with you. There are a gazillion items on the menu. There's so much diversity within that one style of cuisine. You could go a year and not duplicate
1: I read the your same thing. meal
0: if you just stuck with Chinese food.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. But your experience is the exception, not the norm. And it depends on where in the country you live, right, that you even have access to that kind of diversity. And so I I would love for that to be everywhere and not just in places like San Francisco or L.A. or New York City.
0: Right. I consider myself extremely fortunate to live in a place where not only can we choose from several different Chinese restaurants, but excellent ones (laughs) on (laughs) top of that. Truly excellent. So, yeah, I like this vision. I want people to be thinking about that and I also want us to think about our basic neurophysiology, because there are so many bugs in our 35,000 year old brains that are artifacts of antique times that don't really apply to today, that actually run counter to us being a healthy, larger organism. And one of those is our tendency to wish to conform and not to speak up or speak out. Yesterday, when you and I were speaking, I was talking to you about my own experience with the group, the Bee Gees, and how I liked them, but I was told at a very young age not to like the Bee Gees. And so I hid that, and I was a closeted Bee Gees fan. And meanwhile, that is a part of how that can lead to what I described earlier as the conformity, the unwillingness to speak up or speak out, to be a bystander rather than an upstander. And it's so important for us to speak up. How can we speak up in a manner that will properly and perhaps without crushing a relationship and perhaps while simultaneously still being properly informative to the other? Hey, I won't stand for that.
1: Yeah, I've been so excited to see that, that throughout this year, there's been a lot of bystander intervention trainings free ones that you can find online by like hollaback, for example. I mean, there's so many, so many opportunities to get bystander intervention training. But I think what we're talking about is a little bit different. It's not just in the moment of intervening in something that usually people think of as being physical. But I think it's things like the things we're not prepared for are the things that are usually in our more intimate social lives, actually, when somebody says something really racist in passing and it's a joke to be able to be like, No, not cool.
0: Hey. (laughs) So not funny.
1: So not funny. And how to do that. And yet I guess stay cool. Right.
0: I'm, I'm wondering, how do you do that without really extending the middle finger and harming the relationship? How can we say it in a way that might actually cause the person to step back and say, oh, you know what? You're right. I was trying to be funny and that wasn't funny.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I think we think we have to say so much To stop something, but I think something as simple as like, no, dude, not cool can be enough. Just a signal like, okay, I'm I'm not with that. That's not okay to me could be enough. And I, I think other times too, the power of education, the power of helping people recognize where they may go wrong because they really may not know it. And I think this is where our conversation earlier about intention is super important. And I don't know if we were recording when we talked about intention, but that having Good intention is not enough sometimes. And yet I think what's happening now too, is sometimes we, on the other side, we don't care about somebody's intention. We are only calling them out for the impact.
0: I want to leverage that. Yeah. And go with Brené Brown and differentiate between guilt and shame and how guilt can be very informative and shame can cause us to actually shrink and hide and maybe not examine ourselves. And I think the idea is ideally to somehow We want to kill people. We want to kill people rather (laughs) than shame them. And maybe explain, like, hey, I I can tell you were trying to be funny there. It wasn't funny to me. And I'll tell you why. It just, that's actually contributing to a particular stereotype that kind of sucks. If you could imagine what it would be like to be them. And if you actually, like, had a lunch date with someone and found out what it was like to hear that joke, you might not think it was super funny.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's the guilt part with the. I don't think you mean it that way, though. So totally. I think it's assuming right? good, maybe yeah. assuming, assuming, good assuming, attention.
0: assuming good intention. Assuming good intention, not assuming negative. Attention.
1: We assume good intention and then we pack on the guilt. No, I'm kidding. But actually, <laughs> actually, I'm serious. But but you know, really, right, right? totally. somebody no, saying guilty. something, <laughs> somebody <laughs> saying something, and we say, "Hey, you know what? I don't think you mean it that way. I'm going to assume you didn't mean it that way because if you did, what you're saying is blah 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 blah, right? Which is horrible." And I don't think you made it that way. What I think you meant to do was to be funny and to da-da-da-da. But what that actually does is X, Y, Z. And I think we can do that to let the perpetrator, right, or the offender know that I'm not against you, but I need you to know that what you said, that was not okay. And, but I have faith in you that you're better than that. Totally. I'm not canceling you. Right. Yeah. Let's cancel that statement, but I'm, we're not canceling people.
0: Beautiful. Oh, we're not canceling people. We're canceling the statement. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is gorgeous. That could almost be the title of this show. So since at the heart of the human experience is our ability, I mean, to leverage part of the human strength is our ability to empathize. And that can always grow. And there are no limits for empathy to your earlier statement. It's not like we have to only be empathic towards one portion of the population. We can be empathic towards everyone. And I'm wondering, with regard to empathy, one of the ways that we can increase it is by reading books about the experiences or seeing films about the experiences. Are there any books or films that a listener could engage with that might increase their empathy for the Asian-Americans in the current experience?
1: Yeah, so I'll offer really the most basic one, I think, is really PBS has an Asian American series. It's five episodes and it it's only five right? in the sense that there's so much that had to be omitted. But uh. it gives you a little sense of the history of Asian Americans in this country. And I think the more you learn that, the more you will see its connections of Asian Americans with other communities and, and to really see, in many ways, humanize Asian American pain and suffering to understand then what our communities' experiences have been like. And I think that that is a good basic way to start across the age span. I mean, and I've had folks who have watched it with their kids with popcorn. to really say, let's watch the show together and let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it's like to see other Asian Americans, to see Filipinos, to see Japanese Americans, to learn about the internment camp, to learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and to really say, well, how does it apply now? Because we'll see. That what happened in history is replaying now and will continue to replay.
0: So I have to ask you my final question. It's the magical one. It is, if you did have the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, particularly those residing in the United States, because we're talking about an American problem, one insight or one skill that would have incredible benefit to the individuals as well as society at large what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact all the stakeholders?
1: When it comes to race relations, I think in line with our like five-year goal and dream would be for everyone to learn about Asian-Americans in their history classes and about Asian-American history, like knowing that Asian-Americans were lynched, actually, and that the largest Asian-American lynching, the Chinese that had that happened to Chinese people were, was in LA. Like, these really kind of Mm -hmm. core parts of Asian American history that people don't know about, including Asian Americans. And I think if we all knew more, and I'm very intentional about saying, including Asian Americans in U.S. history, rather than saying, let's have a separate Asian American history class because that really separates it as though Asian American history is separate from U.S. history. And it is not. It is U.S. history in terms of who built the railroads and how they were exploited and weaponized, actually that, you know, coolies who were hired, Chinese laborers hired to do really dangerous work was really used in many ways to also punish the black freed slaves to say, well, we are going to take somebody else who's better than you and how Asian-Americans have been used as wedges and weapons against other communities of color. We
0: need to learn this. How do you think it would benefit all stakeholders if there was more awareness and more learning around
1: I think if or when we're able to learn this, we will see, like, like we were saying earlier, how interconnected all everything is, how interconnected racism is and hurting each and every one of us in terms of how it affects our children, how it affects us. I think when we are able to see the interconnectedness of it, it will feel very personal to us because we will know somebody or even be somebody who has directly been damaged by that. And then we'll say, no, we, we need this to stop. And it really ultimately will become community prevention, community care. And, and really, you know, bystander intervention is saying really saying as an outsider, I'm going to stop it. I want better. I want more than intervention. I want prevention. I want us to build a community where we don't even need to intervene, where we already have the empathy and the care and the desire to protect one another so that things like that don't even get to the level that warrant intervention.
0: I love that. Well, Sherry, I just want to say such a big thank you to for taking your time, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with my listeners, who I hope will leverage it to help create the five year dream that you and I are just beginning to create a blueprint for. And (laughs) I'm just so glad to have you as a colleague and a new friend.
1: Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much. We should check back in five years and be like, okay, where are we
0: now? I think I'll check back a little before then, but <laughs> we'll, we'll certainly do that as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.